listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning. Let's go. First Peter chapter 2. I admit David Wooten got in my head last week. I did not realize that I say that every time I get up here. Good morning, let's go. But... Um, Good morning, let's go. First Peter chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. The more shiny brown one. You can find that on page 1015. The less shiny brown Bible. You be the judge of whether or not you have a shiny or less shiny. You can find it on page 799. And then I think there's a few little black ones. Um, I've taken you as far as I can take you. I'm not sure what page those are on if you're using one of those other older black ones that we had previously. Well, um, I just want to say praise God for last Sunday and David Wooten's message for Orphan Sunday. If you were not here, I would love for you to pick up a CD of that message or download it from the internet. I think they're out on the information desk. It was a wonderful message about our responsibilities. We took a break from First Peter a wonderful message about our responsibility as a church to care for, for the fatherless and how that commends the gospel. So praise God for that. All right, well, um, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we think through the end of chapter 2. Father, we come to you now with humility, with joy, and Lord, we need you today. I need you. Show us beautiful things in your word wean us from this world and woo us to Christ. For believers in this room, stir our affections for Jesus. Make him more beautiful than this world that tugs at our heart. I pray that the beautiful affection we have for Jesus would crowd out false affections. I pray, God, for our friends in this room who are not yet believers that today Jesus would become so lovely, so irresistible, that your kind grace would overpower their stubborn will and give them a longing to trust in Jesus, that you would give them faith and repentance and love so that they might turn away from counterfeit pleasures and trust in the only true joy, which is Christ. And as we as a faith family, as Christians this morning, come around your table to remember and celebrate Jesus' work on the cross through receiving the Lord's table, the Lord's supper together this morning, I pray, God, that the loudest note that would be played today would be Christ crucified and risen and reigning supreme. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now. Look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. I think this text is a follow-on of what's been going on in most of the second chapter of 1 Peter, where Peter, after he outlines the gospel so clearly in the first chapter, now 
He's giving us what it looks like to follow Jesus, to stand on the truth and the power of what God has done to make his people right through Jesus now as a consequence of what God has done to make us right with Jesus. This is what it looks like to live in a fallen world. And so I think that's the theme of this text, living for Christ in a a fallen world. Let me read, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his, foot, in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's holy word. I think the, if I could summarize what I think Peter is saying to us here is that as Christians, we have been redeemed by God, but we then for the remainder of our life are still living in a fallen world. And now he is encouraging us to posture ourselves in the remainder of our life in a fallen world so that we will point an onlooking world to the surpassing worth of life for Jesus with ever, forever. And he gives us two examples, how we should interact with authority in government and how we should interact with authority personally in the context of people who are over us as bosses or masters. So let's look at the first few verses there, 13 through 17. And I think that what Peter is saying here is he's giving these Christians who are scattered across what is modern-day Turkey truths and principles about how they should posture themselves toward a wicked Roman Empire. 
So a couple things to note here is that the emperor that Peter is telling these Christians that they should submit to was not a Christian, far from it. In fact, in a few years, this Roman emperor will begin to amp up the persecution of Christians, and it will go beyond just sort of social persecution, which is what they're enduring right now, to actual physical persecution and martyrdom, which Again, in God's providence, as we think about praying for the persecuted church, we realize that there are Christians in other countries, in other parts of the world, who are enduring far more than just the sort of social, political persecution that we might be enduring even on a relatively light scale compared to what they're enduring in places in Africa and the Middle East. And so Peter is giving them advice on how to deal with this setting that they find themselves in. And so I want to give us just very quickly some principles for how Christians should posture themselves toward government. We're going to have it up here on a list just to go through these principles very quickly. Peter says in verse 13 that we should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. So there we can conclude Principle number one about how Christians should posture themselves toward government, toward a pagan, unbelieving government, which was true in Rome, the Roman Empire, and Turkey, where these people believed and lived, and is true for us today. The American government is not a Christian government. And so how should we posture themselves, ourselves toward it? Number one, truth number one of how we should posture ourselves is that God has given a limited authority to government. God has given a limited authority to government, even unbelieving pagan government. In fact, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, it says that all authority, and it doesn't qualify that authority, not just Christian authority, but all authority has been instituted by God. So God has given a limited authority to Government And in fact, this, this authority that God gives this government, part of that authority is to bring order and civil order to our culture. And so part of that there in verse 14 that Peter says that this governor and people from him are sent to punish those who do evil. And so all of these people that we had to stand up and, and cheer for their service to our nation, what you are doing, soldiers even as you serve an imperfect and in many ways unrighteous but ordained by God American government that has organized a military and sends that military to punish evildoers and terrorists and despots and rulers across the world, even though our motives as a nation for Entering into conflict might not always be 100% pure, and that is no commentary on the current war on terror. What I'm saying is, is that even though imperfect nations and imperfect governments may execute things imperfectly, what you are doing is fulfilling the, the, the purposes of God of using imperfect pagan governments to punish evil people. And so what you are doing is a good and righteous thing. And so, God has given limited authority to government. And principle number two is that Christians should submit to the righteous authority of their government because God has given it to that government. And so we as Christians, he says there in verse 13, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So we should be 
We should submit to the righteous authority of our government. But principle number three, and this is important, and it may not spell it out clearly here in 1 Peter, but we see it woven in throughout the Bible, is that Christians should disobey the government when obedience to that government means disobeying God. So what Peter is saying here is not that Christians should obey the Roman emperor no matter what he says, but that in the sphere that God has given the governor to exercise his authority for civil order and for just the running of society, that we should submit to that government. But when that government causes us or charges us to do something which would mean disobedience to God, we should disobey that government. A couple examples. In the first chapter of Exodus, we see these Hebrew midwives disobeying Pharaoh's edict to kill all of the Hebrew firstborn sons. And these, these midwives disobeyed, hid Moses, and Moses is, grows up to be the great deliverer. We see it again in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6, these three Hebrew boys who had been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar refused to bow down and eat his food, which would have been restricted for them as Jewish boys to eat at that time, and they refused to do that. And then we see Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 refusing to bow down to King Darius and to pray to him and say, no, I'm going to pray to God and not to you. And he, he subsequently gets thrown into the lion's den for his disobedience to the unrighteous call of his government. And then we see in the New Testament, we see Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5 when the ruling authorities say to them that you cannot preach and teach in Jesus' name. They disobey that extent of the government's rule and they say, no, we can do nothing but preach in Jesus' name. In fact, we cannot obey man instead of God. And so there are times when Christians are called to disobey our government when obedience to that government means disobeying God. And then the fourth and final principle is, is that Christians finally, even especially when that government is something that they agree with, Christians should not put their hope in government. They shouldn't put their hope in government if their particular political party is in power. And they shouldn't communicate to an onlooking world that if only the political party that more aligns with their views is elected in the next election, that then things will be okay because then we lie to the culture about what our true hope is. Having said that, I am by no means saying that Christians should not, if they feel called to it, should not be very active and participate and maybe run for office and vote. In fact, I would encourage you to vote as many times as they will let you. Like wherever you're, pro I mean, it happens in Florida, happens in Chicago, just vote right around the block, vote, see if they'll let you do it again. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in political campaigns and that they shouldn't run for office and they shouldn't be very involved, but there should be a sort of wise posture that as active as we are in these things or as much as we care about them or as much as we get involved about them, that there should always be this sort of sense, this underlying deeper truth in us that our hope is not in the election of a particular 
political party or platform, but our hope ultimately, even as we seek to do good to the culture that we live in, and even if part of that means fighting for good principles to to be part of a platform or to be elected into office, that is all good and righteous, but there's a a sort of balance there that we as Christians must have to communicate to an onlooking world that ultimately our hope is not in the Democrats or in the Republicans or in the conservatives or the liberals or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, but in Christ alone. And friends, we need each other to walk that perspective to be people who care and labor for the good of our city and the good of our nation, but don't let the good of our nation become an idol. We need each other to walk that balance. So some application to how Christians should posture and live out these principles. Well, I think there's areas where, that are clear where we should disobey the government. If the government says that um, a, a particular company like Hobby Lobby should fund um, abortions and that they as a Christian company should participate in that decision they should righteously disobey the government like they have done and they've taken a stand and praise God from what I understand I think that they've relented on that and are going to give Hobby Lobby a pass on that I'm not sure but if you're a Christian doctor or you're a Christian owner and they say that you must participate or you must fund the taking of a human life you should disobey even if it means losing your business and your license and your practice no matter how far we get in five to ten years you should disobey If we as a church are ever commanded by the state to endorse anything other than marriage as being between a man and a woman, we should disobey and fight that. Even if it means that they would take our, any sort of preferential treatment we would get as a a church tax-wise, friends, being clear about God and his created order is far more important. Now let me just say this, that if you have ever had an abortion or participated in an abortion, or you are a person that is wrestling with same-sex attraction, friends, we are not a hostile place to you. In fact, we are, I am so glad that you are here. And if you want to know where this church, our heart is towards people that are wrestling with same-sex attraction, I commend you to go listen to our message back in July where we talked about the gospel and homosexuality. I think that anything, any human sexual expression outside of marriage between a man and a woman ultimately is sin and must be turned away from. But friends, we are not here to bash on homosexuals. We are here to love them and point them to Jesus who alone will satisfy the soul of a sinner. And so know that this is a safe place for you. And even as we as a church in the years may have to take stands against these issues, we are wanting this to be a place of gospel grace and healing to where you can take God's side against your sin like every other person who must take God's side against their sin, whatever stripe and sliver and flavor it may be. Those are clear issues where we need to disobey the government. Where it's not as clear is issues like whether or not we should participate in a particular war, how involved the government should be in health care, how involved the government should be in taking care of the poor, 
Now certainly, friends, there are wise things and wise principles that we can look at as we think about where Christians should be politically on these things. But friends, we should have grace toward those who disagree, even as we work vigorously for positions that we might feel very passionate about. So Christians are to posture themselves in a way here, Peter says, towards unrighteous, pagan, unbelieving government that has been instituted by God for his divine purposes. And we react towards that government in a way that postures ourselves so that we are the best citizens, but we don't communicate that we put our hope in that unrighteous government. We're putting our hope in Jesus and his reign forevermore. Then he commends us again after talking to us about government that we should live as servants who are free. That we shouldn't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. We should live as servants of God. And then in verse 17, he says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. That means that as Christians, we are called to display Christ by loving one another in a particular way. Peter prioritizes the relationship between Christians so that we become a display to outsiders merely by how we treat each other. People don't have an appreciation for this, I think, in our culture. We think of evangelism as like events or maybe a preacher or a revival or one-on-one witnessing, and it is all of those things. But friends, I want to change your paradigm a little bit. I want you to think about how the Bible and the New Testament oftentimes presents evangelism. The main thrust of it is the life of the local church and how this dusty group of pardoned rebels love one another so that they become a countercultural display to an onlooking world. And all of these people that are in their spheres of influence are looking at how these people People love each other, and it becomes an irresistible, beautiful thing to an onlooking world as they look at people loving each other, loving each other in this way. So he commands us to love one another. Friends, we cannot do this on the edge. We cannot do this if nobody knows our name. And as we grow as a church, I mean, we used to be 10 or 15 people in a living room eight years ago, and now we're hundreds of people. How can we love the brotherhood if our only contact with the brotherhood is 10 minutes late, 10 minutes out early, I got my sermon, I sang my favorite song, and I'm gone, and nobody knows my name. Friends, it is impossible to do that. But, but because we are, we are self-serving, wimpy Americans, and maybe we had a, a bad experience sometime in the past, we then let our past hurt or our lack of accountability or our fear of whatever, of being known, be the defining characteristic of our life with Christ. Friends, you cannot, I beg of you, you cannot live like that. You are reducing what God has done in Christ for you as a private, personal experience. And the Bible knows nothing of that type of Christianity. It says, love the brotherhood. So that means love people who will offend you, who are jacked up, who've got issues, who are emotionally 
taxing, who will weigh you down, who will fail you, who you will have to serve, who will be hard to love. Love those type of people. Don't just love pretty people or people from your neighborhood or people that kind of run in your circles, but love people who are not like you, whose skin color is different, who don't live in your same demographic or work in the same places or eat the same food or like the same football team. Love jacked up people because you're jacked up too. And when we do that, like when we die to ourselves and our preferences and we, we love the brotherhood, and the brotherhood is not pretty people on websites. Like when we were starting this church eight years ago and we had this like website company help us with like all the pictures that they make websites, like just browse church websites. And those stock photos of people that they put on church websites, they're all beautiful. Like it's the, the peppered gray businessman, you know, who's just this handsome guy. And he's like got his arm around this attractive young Asian lady in her 20s. And then there's this beautiful, you know, African-American couple. And they're, yeah, I mean, they're all these beautiful, like, oh, we're just, it's like, oh, harmony. Pick a beautiful person from every ethnic group and put them together. That's our church. Friends, that's not the way. Some of you are good looking, but most of you are scrappy dogs. <laughs> Come on. So we got to be willing to sit next to and to love and to get to know people who are hard to love. Love the brotherhood. Love the outcasts. Love the emotionally taxing person. Love the mom who doesn't seem like she's got it together with her kids. Love the person whose theology isn't quite as refined as yours. Have patience with them. Love Christ and his people more than you love your comfort. And it becomes a beautiful display to an onlooking world. Way more time than I wanted to spend on that. Let's go. Verse 18. So Christians should posture themselves towards government in this way. And then he, in verses 18 through 21, tells us how we should posture ourselves towards masters or bosses that are unjust or towards more personal authority in our life. Now, a word here about why the Bible in the New Testament, especially, does not ever just kind of come outright and condemn slavery. We have several instances in the New Testament letters in Peter and Paul where they speak to how a person should live in the relationship that they find themselves oftentimes slaves in the New Testament world. Well, a couple things. One is that when you read about slavery in the Bible, um, it's not exactly like the despicable, horrible, obviously, slavery that we know of in our history as America. But nevertheless, it is. Again, um, regardless of whether it's exactly like the the terrible blight on American history, it is where one person is in subjection to another, often treated unrighteously, often abused in horrible ways in the New Testament first century world. And so a question is often asked, why doesn't the Bible just come out outright and condemn slavery? Peter, Paul, why don't they do this, the New Testament writers? Well, the Bible is not written 
primarily as a manifesto for social reform. But it's written to a group of people who, because of their relationship in Christ, are now sojourners and exiles, as Peter has written. It's, it's primarily written to show us how to be made right with our Creator and Holy God. And the Bible is more concerned about our hearts than social reform. And the Bible knows, the Holy Spirit intended, that as the Bible, as the gospel is preached, from the inside out, it begins to transform culture. And so, don't be alarmed when the Bible doesn't seem to kind of come and outright condemn slavery, because we know that the gospel, as we look at all of its implication in life, condemns all sin and all mistreatment of all people. And so we now have to do a little bit of work to think about, well, how does this apply to us? Because we may not have ever lived, in fact, none of us have very likely lived in a situation where we are a physical slave or indentured servant of another person. So the application for us is that we do have authority. We have personal authority. We have bosses. We find ourselves in work environments or maybe family environments where the authority is unjust and we are suffering unjustly. What are we to do about this? Very similarly to Peter's instruction about government is that we are to live in such a way that we commend the gospel and we commend our status with Christ as being preferable over our present uncomfortable situation. How do we as Christians do that? We become people that don't complain and whine about the job that we hate. Just, just sort of take toll of our posture towards our lot in life right now. Just browse like the Facebook statuses on Mondays of many people who consider themselves to be Christians. I hate Mondays. <laughs> I hate my job. You know, I mean, it's just like, well, praise God. <laughs> Friends, what Peter is saying to these people is that the Christian life is not about defending our rights, but displaying the surpassing worth of Jesus. So wherever you may find yourself in, whatever less than optimal environment you may find yourself, whatever cubicle, whatever platoon, whatever station, whatever thing, whatever place that you find yourself in, know that God is sovereign over all things and that he is working all things together for the display of his glory and your good in your life. And so he has you there in that situation now, maybe not to stay there, forever, but to be somebody that through your attitude, through the way you endure injustice, to be a person that models the gospel, models how Jesus endured injustice, and displays the surpassing worth of Jesus. Friends, because we as Americans are people that are addicted to the utopian ideal of comfort and a personal circumstance that always lines up with our pleasures. Are we not? And what we unwittingly communicate to a world when we constantly complain about how things are broken is that we communicate the thing that we're most longing for is a circumstance that we prefer. 
But the thing is, friends, even if we could line up everything exactly like we like it, we'd still be unhappy if we didn't have Jesus. And so we, Peter, is commending these people. Look, whether your, your master is a jerk or he's gentle, know that ultimately you are posturing yourself in this broken world to display the surpassing worth of Jesus. And Peter calls unjust suffering that points to Jesus, he calls it a gracious thing. Think about that. Are you mistreated? Are you in a marriage that's difficult? Are you passed over for promotion? Are you not noticed? Do you not get the credit you deserve? When we posture ourselves and display that Jesus is better than our desired outcome in all of those situations, even as we labor towards justice in the circumstance, we display that Jesus is better than this life. And God calls that not something to complain about or be miserable about. He calls it a gracious thing. And listen, I'm not here to stand up and say, uh, yeah, do this, as if I have it all figured out. Friends, I mean, even recently, my heart has been so far away from this verse because I am going through a period as a pastor of just utter frustration, oftentimes. And I want Crosspoint to be doing this and to look this way and for everybody to, uh, 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 and there can be just this sense oftentimes in ministry where it's not what you want it to be and you're, you're just the loudest thing about you is your frustration with where you are in life. And friends, when, when we let that be the loudest note we posture ourselves to blame all of our circumstances and say, well, this isn't right, this isn't right, I wish you would, and, and, and it just becomes kind of, oh, well, this, this, and this person would do this better, and if they, then everything would be, and, and, and what we do is we point towards the greatest, most important thing to us is alignment of our priorities rather than the surpassing worth of Jesus. And we buy into this lie that we can, we can make everything Fully satisfying here in this life. Friends, this world is broken. This world is broken. It will never fully satisfy. And we lie when we complain about it. And we miss the opportunity to point towards the surpassing worth of Jesus. And pray, pray for me as a pastor to, to just be okay with my own inadequacy. To just, to just be okay with the frustrations of pastoral ministry. Because when I point towards the surpassing worth of Jesus rather than everything happening the way I want it to happen. I display that Jesus is better than ministry success. He's better than anything that we can do as a church. He is better, friends, than those things. And when we do this, we follow in Jesus' footsteps because he's an example but Jesus' death is much more than just an example to follow. And I think that's 
the main point of this text. In fact, I think it's the main point of First Peter. I think it's the main point of the whole Bible. Is that first and foremost, Jesus' death is not just an example, but it made us right with God. It ransomed us from slavery to sin, to self, and to death and freed us to life so that we might follow Jesus. And that's what he ends on. And he says, verse 22, he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, meaning God the Father who judges justly. Verse 24, verse 24, I mean this, verse 24, every now and again, there's just woven into a book in the Bible, a verse that just summarizes the point of everything. Verse 24 is like a little mini Bible in itself. Verse 24 is a wonderful verse to memorize. Verse 24. It says, He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So let's just break down that sentence. Jesus bore our sins. That means that Jesus, on the cross, this was prophesied in Isaiah, repeated over and over again in the New Testament, that on the cross Jesus took the weight, he took the punishment, he became sin for us. So what happens in the gospel, friends, listen to me, if you haven't been following me up to this point, tune in now, this is the gospel, this is the message of the Bible. This is why we exist as a church. This is what you must wrestle with. This is what you must be confronted with. This is what you must submit to. This is what you must believe in order to be made right with a holy creator God. And it is this, that you friends, like every other person who has ever lived, except for Jesus, is a sinner. We have all offended God, whether we are obvious public sinners, or whether we are internal, self-righteous, little moralistic church kids, we have all decided that we can do it on our own. And sin separates us from God and makes us accountable to a holy and righteous and good creator. And we, because God is holy and we have separated ourselves from him, are under his just and good punishment. And the gospel is, is that God does not leave us there, but he comes to us as God the Son, Jesus, God, but yet fully man, lives a perfect life where we rebelled, he obeyed, and then lays his perfect life down on the cross where God puts the sin of all those who would ever trust in him on Jesus, and Jesus bears. He bears our sin and the punishment for our sin on the cross. And because he's perfect and because he's God, he can bear that weight. And on the cross, he dies, he extinguishes God's punishment, God's justice for all those that ever return and trust, and he rises again in victory over it. So he bears our sin in his 
body that we might die to sin. So to be a Christian means that we're trusting in Jesus who has died and risen again in victory and we, like Jesus, die to our old self. To trust in Jesus isn't just to add something to your life, but is to walk away from your former life and to trust in Jesus, to die to the past and to live to Christ. And so he rises again so that now we can live in righteousness. So Jesus dies. He bears the punishment for our sin. He rises again. And because he's alive, he can give life. He's conquered death. And he commands those who are his people to rise and walk with him, to leave sin, to leave their former life, to leave self-trust, and to trust in him. And then Peter says, At the end of verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. Friends, this is not a little juice card for name it and claim it prosperity gospel types that can just add that on and say, believe this and you'll be healed of your physical ailment. Friends, what's in view here is that we are healed of our sin sickness and separation from God. And so because Jesus bore the sins of his people, we can die to sin and live to righteousness. And because he's alive and reigns, and because he's able to give life to his people, we now are healed in our separation from God. Now oftentimes as a sort of pointing to our future reality, God does heal a physical sickness, and we should certainly pray for that. We find that admonition in scriptures like James 5 and other places, that we can oftentimes be healed by God of our physical ailments as a sort of drop of mercy, a sort of down payment to point towards heaven. But what's in view here in this verse is not physical healing, but our spiritual healing for the gap that existed between us and a holy God. So friends, our fundamental problem is not government. Our fundamental problem is not the unrighteous government that may exist in the Roman Empire or in America today. Our fundamental problem is not a boss that doesn't understand or promote or a marriage that isn't optimal or authority that mistreats us, friends. Our fundamental problem is our holy and creator God who we have offended and Jesus once for all gave up himself, laid down his body on the tree, bore our sins, died and rose again and now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in him alone for the right standing with God and when we do that we are healed our fundamental problem friends is not a less than ideal life here on earth but our fundamental problem is a holy God who we must be made right with and our only hope of that happening is not us straightening up ourselves but trusting in Jesus who alone can mediate and atone for our sins. And that's what we come to do even now as we receive communion. To look to Jesus on the tree, crucified, buried, and risen for us. We are called to live life in a broken and fallen world. And we are called as Christians to posture ourselves to display the surpassing surpassing worth of Jesus. 
And friends, if you are not yet a Christian, you are called right now to believe in Jesus, to trust in him and not yourself. I plead, I beg of you to do that even now. I'm not asking you to recite some specific prayer. I'm not asking you to do anything other than to look to Jesus and to trust in him. I'm asking you to look away from yourself, to look away from whatever circumstance is less than ideal. And I'm asking you to look to Jesus, who alone can put you in right standing with your creator. Have faith in what he has done, not what you have done. Look to him, trust in him. Ask him to come and be your Lord even now. And if you do that even now, you are welcome with all of us in this room who are already Christians to receive this meal which represents what Jesus has done on that tree, on that cross. The bread represents his broken body. It was broken for us. And the juice represents his blood that was spilled for us. And as we as Christians come monthly to remember what Jesus has done, if you are trusting in Christ, even now in this past hour, you're welcome to come to this table with us as you look to Jesus and believe in him. Ushers, if you'd come forward and be prepared to service in just a moment. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, help us. One of the great reformers, Calvin or Luther, or one of those guys said that the human heart is an idol factory. And we are prone to make idols out of this life, out of our country, out of our situation, out of our desires for a a good life. When we do that, Lord, we lie to an onlooking world and we miscommunicate the point of human history that is not that we would have a cozy existence here on this earth, but that we would live for your glory and display the surpassing worth of the world to come Life with Jesus forever. And that is where true joy is. Not in promotion, not in politics, not in, not in our pleasure here in this, these 80 or 90 years, but true joy and true pleasure is in being right, in right relationship with our Creator forevermore. Lord, as we look at this text today, Remind us, show us that our fundamental problem is not government or bosses or less than optimal circumstances, but our fundamental problem is your holiness and our sin and Jesus has made a way. So God, refresh, hit the refresh button and cause us to look afresh at Jesus' work on the cross and place all of our hope and all of our trust afresh in Him. And for my friends in this room who have never done that, God, for the first time, would they look away from themselves, would they look away from circumstances, and would they look to Jesus and be healed of self, of sin, 
and separation from you. And then, God, as we are refreshed and looking for and longing to and trusting in Jesus, would you give us wisdom on how to live in that surpassing worth of Christ rather than fleeting circumstance? As we come around this table, reorient our gaze to the shepherd of our souls, Jesus. I pray these things in his glorious name.